This is John Glenn uh, talking about oxopacy. I suppose, you know, a very important part of every Bond film is the pre-title sequences, something really that had been developed gradually over the years. Um, I think with Octopussy, um, I know I sat in an office uh, with Michael Wilson and we sort of threw ideas at one another and what have you. Um, on a previous film, Moonraker, we constructed um, three beady jets, which are these, uh, I think it's called an Acrostar. And um, a, there was a pilot who used to fly these things called Corky Thornoff, and he came over to London uh, to meet us and uh, showed us a commercial that he shot for a Japanese company of the Acrostar flying through a, an empty hangar. And uh, I ex explained to him that what's in very important in a bomb film is you have to um, you, you have to involve the audience in any stunts, and therefore um, the only way we could make that exciting would be if we filled the hangar up with all kinds of people and aeroplanes and made it really hazardous and create some, some suspense. And of course he was insistent that one, he couldn't possibly fly his plane through the hangar with any people inside, and most dangerous stunt. But unfortunately, it's over so quickly, and it doesn't look very exciting. So I there and then decided we'd use the, the Acrojet, but uh, we, we'd not not fly it for real through the hangar. We'd actually generate our own stunt. Uh, so we called in um, the special effects guys. John Richardson came in, and uh, uh, we talked about it. And we we went to the Peter, Peter Lamont, our production designer. Um, we, went down to the Pima Studios and we, we got these three Acra jets out and had a look at them and they really were quite tiny aeroplanes. Um, John uh, then got a, a Jaguar XJ6 and he, he cut the the body off of it and just had the sort of chassis and strengthened it all up and he mounted on it um, an arm, a pole arm, uh, from which he could lie flat on the vehicle um, and operate the tilt controls. Um, this enabled us to put Roger Moore up on the, in the pl actual plane and actually drive it through the hangar and disguise the pole arm in the car with lots of people running backwards and forwards. If you examine it closely, you'll see uh, how we've cleverly disguised uh, the, the, the motor car so it appears to be flying. Um, we also then made um, a foreground miniature of the exterior of the hangar um, we put a phony door in the foreground, which didn't move, which was placed about five feet from the camera in miniature. And then the far door, which merged with the foreground door, um, we used um, troops and that trying to close the door as the BD jet approaches. Um, that was a, a, probably a five-foot model, um, and John Richardson very cleverly um, used a rig so he could angle it so that it went from the the wings went from being horizontal with the ground to vertical and uh, as the door is closing we have the additional suspense of will he get in the door before he gets before he smashes into the closed door and uh, it worked so well we decided we'd do the same on the exit as well um, that was very very um, very successful uh, foreground miniature sequence and uh, used every device um, we could think of. At that time, strangely enough, we were shooting this at North Holt Aerodrome, a, a place where a lot of the bonds have shot sequences. 
when we built the um, the polo ground and the military complex at North Holt, uh, we had palm trees which had to be um, raised and lowered uh, every time a plane landed. Because <laughs> it's an operational aerodrome. Roger Moore uh, had a very good, uh, I think his name was Ken Somerville, very good double, um, which he'd used on the Saints and various other series. And um, we got Ken out of retirement and uh, brought him in. And <laughs> he was indeed, he was, he was kind of like a, uh, very much like Roger in build and stature, an incredible sort of double. And uh, we were able to use the idea that um, Bond impersonates this um, officer, I didn't, uh, this officer in uh, some South American com country. Um, we then sent um, Phil Ressler, the second unit director, to um, America, where it's very easy to shoot uh, aerial sequences. Somehow the, the weather's better and the permissions and they have the space. And um, Phil shot a whole series of shots of the uh, BD jet flying through canyons and under bridges and generally very exciting um, material. This was, of course, combined with shots we did in the studio where John Richardson con constructed um, a model aeroplane um, and towed uh, a firework behind it. Um, this was my suggestion. I did it as sort of a half joke to John and uh, he thought about it for a while and then he developed a, literally a firework which he towed behind his model aeroplane and he got his expert pilots we've used on several other films. And um, over at Pima Studios they must have wondered what we were doing to see this um, model aeroplane um, cavorting around the sky, trailing the, the rocket. But of course it looked as though it was a missile which was about to hit them at any time. Um, we used several models in the sequence, um, including a, a very large model, which again John shot, which was um, um, shot on the back lot of Pinewood of the hangar blowing up. And uh, it's a strange story, really, with uh, where the BD jet comes up to the petrol station, which is kind of the payoff, um, and lands in the road, and he he goes up to the attend the old attendant, and he says, "Fill her up," you know, which is kind of funny. And because the film was quite long and the opening sequence was quite long, I was looking for places to uh, to exit the sequence. And at one time, I did con did cut actually cut that end seat tag off where he said fill her up. And I just happened to be with my family down at the south coast uh, one weekend and uh, went in the local cinema. And there, lo and behold, there was a a trailer for the upcoming Octopussy coming this summer. And in the trailer. Morris Binder had put in the, that very shot of the petrol station and, the, and saying, fill her up. And it got a huge laugh, although there were only a dozen people in the cinema. So I immediately went back on Monday morning and put it back in the film. <laughs> All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour or two. Had no intention to do the things we've done.
Morris Bender's been doing our titles for many years and uh, it's kind of famous style and um, you know many times they talked about changing the style of our titles like all artists he was he had to be in the right mood and he he, he couldn't tell people ahead of time really what equipment he wanted how many people he wanted and you know, it was pretty for the production company he was pretty frustrated working with him but he was a bit of a genius Morris and uh, um, it was well worth going along with all the aggravation I think but uh, he um, we were very lucky to get Rita Coolidge to uh, to sing the, the, the theme song for us and um, as usually happens with, when you do the music ideally from Morris's point of view he would have the music before he started doing his titles but of course you know by the time it's shot in America and what have you and it's mixed it's, we don't get the title song until we're in the last stages of mixing the, the tracks together so it's too late for Morris so he has to kind of adjust his work and imagine what the song's going to be like and kind of adjust the the, the, the titles um, at the last moment um, I think with um, we, Rita Coolidge at that time was uh, you know her kind of song I suppose was uh, it was a ballad and uh, ballads are, are very difficult these days with uh, all the youngsters and that to, to promote but uh, uh, it's a song that's gained in reputation as the years have gone by um, there's a funny story I think with Morris was Morris was one of those guys, he was always saying to me, you know, I must take you and your wife out for dinner, you know, and what have you, and, and it never came about. Um, when Morris died many years later, um, I had a call from, I was working in Hollywood, and I had a call from, I think it was the Independent, and um, they asked me to do an obituary, which I stopped work and I did right away, and I said, when do you need it? They said, immediately. Um, so I, I wrote the obituary and uh, I faxed it to them and uh, thought, you know, nothing more. They sent me the article and what have you. And about three weeks later, um, a cheque arrived for, I think it was for $100 or something of that nature, or even less, about $60 I think it was. I didn't expect to get paid for it, but the cheque arrived. And I went that evening I went out to dinner with my wife and we went into um, Beverly Hills and had a nice meal and um, the uncanny thing was when the bill came up it was the exact amount of money of the, uh, the, the check was written out for sixty dollars twenty-five cents or something you know absolutely uncanny it made my hair stand up in the back of my head so Morris did buy us a meal after all
Some guests have arrived, Ambassador. We should go, my dear. Moneypenny had been played by Lois Maxwell for many years and a very, very difficult act to follow. And she was approaching uh, the end of playing that particular part. It really required um, a younger person. And all the time, of course, while we were making this film, you know, there had been talk that Roger was going to pack it in as well, which, um, you know, was a possibility. And all this used to happen while we were in pre-production. and. Uh, we were already looking for someone to replace Lois, and uh, she was very difficult to replace, I must say. I looked at lots of actresses. Uh, we decided in this instance that we'd um, try and introduce an assistant, uh, Penelope Smallbone, and James Clavell's daughter um, fitted the role, a very beautiful girl, and um, much to, I think, Lois's. Uh, Chagrin, if you like, she <laughs> she played a scene which was written carefully to get a little rivalry between the two of them. Um, in the event, she didn't go on to become um, the new Miss Moneypenny, and uh, that that uh, um, part was given to someone else. But uh, uh, again, we had uh, unfortunately we we had lost Bernard Lee, who played M. And uh, again, this happens on films and. You have these lo well-loved characters um, that go on for many films, and it's very, very difficult to replace them because they're so strong in the public's affection. Uh, Robert Brown came in and uh, uh, did a sterling job, I thought. Uh, he's an old friend of Rogers, and indeed, Rogers suggested him for the part. Uh, I think they'd worked on Ivanhoe together and lots of other films. They were great friends. Um, so, all, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Bernard Lee could never be replaced, of course, um, but a very, very fine actor that I first worked with on uh, The Third Man, one of the first films I worked on. They usually turn up out of interest or perhaps... The Fabergé egg was, a, was an incredible prop and a uh, thing of great beauty and had little... Not only did it have the egg, but it had little things built inside it. Uh, very intricate. Um, of course, the, the, we, we were going to... Uh, site this film in India. Uh, there were several reasons for it. A, it was a location we hadn't used before. Um, secondly, um, one of the writers in the early stages was George MacDonald Fraser, who was renowned for his Flashman books, which were all set in India. Uh, and so it, it seemed a natural fit somehow. Um, I think from a production point of view, the, the films were costing more and more, although ours were very efficient operations. And, uh, you know, we when we first budgeted Octopussy, it was um, going to be something like $36 million. And one of the ways that we could actually economize on this was to, in fact, buy frozen rupees. So we negotiated with the Indian government, and um, they were very keen for a James Bond film to go to India. And um, they, in fact, gave us permission to buy up uh, a certain percentage of the frozen rupees that were sloshing around in Hollywood. Uh, so some of the major distributors in Hollywood actually sold us at a, a big discount, sold us some uh, rupees, and um, this helped us to keep the budget down to about $32 million. 
remind you the committee of our overwhelming superiority. The typical James Bond has a typical James Bond set, and uh, the Kremlin was no exception. Uh, Peter Lamont, the production designer, really excelled himself with the set. It was so amazing when I first walked on, and he showed me his masterpiece. Uh, it was complete with a revolving podium uh, and a screen that um, revealed on the wall the state of the East versus the West. And uh, an actor that um, had been recommended to me, and um, uh, I think it was Barbara Broccoli, was the one that uh, really found him, was, was uh, Stephen Burkhoff. Um, we went along to um, see one of his plays uh, in one of the art theatres in town. And uh, I was so impressed with the man, so impressed with his uh, rather, shall we say, extravagant performances, but he is a, a force on the screen. We have played out a variety of attack strategies on the new Kultsoft computer and find that a lightning thrust by ten armoured divisions from the north and by five more through Czechoslovakia leads to total victory in five days against any possible defense scenario. Um, Walter Gittau, who was playing the head of the KGB, as usual, um, he, his eyebrows went higher and higher as he, he listened to Stephen Burkhoff ranting away. And uh, Walter, being a good old trooper, um, went, went up and matched him word for word. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think a very successful scene, and uh, Peter Set was absolutely beautiful. The guy that played uh, Brezhnev, um, I'd seen on a TV series, a documentary on the BBC, and uh, we got him down, and indeed he was a double for Brezhnev, and uh, gave the, the scene a, a, a good feeling of authenticity. I wish to tell you... World socialism will be achieved peaceably. Our military role is strictly defensive. Duh. Is that understood, General Orloff? General Gogol, would you continue? Thank you, Comrade Chairman. I will now turn to the specifics of my report. Uh, tell him I will be there as quickly as possible. Kremlin uh, Art uh, Repository um, is um, quite famous. It, I mean, they, all the Tsarist treasures were stored in, in Moscow, and uh, it was well-known fact that they had stuff there which was unbelievable in value. And uh, Peter Lamont, again, uh, used a... Um, not a foreground miniature this time, he used a miniature set. When you look at the set, all the um, vaults, etc., in the distance, uh, he very cleverly, with his brother Michael, designed a perspective set. In other words, it was it was kind of miniaturized so that it gave a feeling of great depth and distance. Um, the treasures there took a lot of finding, and uh, the, the set dresser and uh, Peter and everyone else scoured all the warehouses, and we borrowed treasures from everybody to make it look authentic. A superb green gold imperial Easter egg by Karl Fabergé. Enameled in translucent green, enclosed by gold laurel leaf trellis, set with blue sapphires and four petaled gold flowers with diamonds. How much should it fetch? 
250, 300,000 pounds, anything more would be crazy. Used by Tsar Nicholas in Proprietari is a lady. 220,000 pounds. 240. James, stick to the business in hand. 260,000 pounds. 280. 300,000 pounds. And 20? Are you bidding, sir? Uh, Louis Jourdain was a, an interesting character. Um, he, of course, had been such a famous uh, heartthrob in, in France and in Hollywood. Um, I remember Gigi and all those films, which were um, absolutely amazing. He was a, a, an icon, really. And uh, now he was a friend of Cubby Broccoli's, and um, Cubby suggested to me that we should interview him. and. Uh, he met him recently at a party and uh, said how, you know, how good he looked and um, how keen he was to do a Bond film. Well, who isn't? Um, uh, I think the most coveted role for me, almost any actor is the villain, and uh, it certainly appealed to Louis. And uh, I met him, and indeed we cast him straight away. He has a kind of a, a dark sort of complexion, and he's um, extremely handsome has a sort of a quality of, of stature which um, an assurance which is very important for a, a bond villain i have 475 500,000 500,000 pounds i have half a million pounds all done any more Yours, sir. £500,000. The next is number... You could have been stuck with it. I doubt it. He had to buy it. But why? That's what I intend to find out. M's office is, um, you know, very special the, with the padded door. I mean, it runs throughout the series. I don't know who invented it originally. I suppose it, it might be true that top security places are soundproofed. But Ken Adam probably um, got the, the padded door, and it was in the red plush leather. You know, it was a, a thing that we um, we carried around with us. I remember when we shot um, uh, in Paris later on in Moonraker. Um, the set was actually packed, packed up and shipped from from England to France and re-erected on the on the stage in um, Biencourt Studios in Paris. Um, so 
you know, the mellow wood and the, and the richness of the set. Uh, some people have said that they look very much like Cubby's office in, the, in London and also at Palmer Studios. Um, I think on reflection it probably did, you know, certainly the desk, the big oversized desk and the nice leathers furniture was a feature of Cubby's office and gave you a, f a feeling of well-being, you know, and uh, I think that that's important, you know, to, to kind of live the Bond saga, if you like, even when you're making the movie. <laughs> India is a fabulous location, it's so rich in history and um, the buildings are so beautiful and I was determined to use the Taj Mahal in the film and uh, I had a uh, on the recce I went uh, to the Taj and I was with Arthur Worcester my second unit director and we we went I'd never been there before and uh, we had a, a pretty horrendous drive to Agra it's like 250 miles or so from Delhi uh, on a very rough road and there were accidents everywhere and um, very colourful country, and um, so in the end, I decided that the the helicopter that delivers Bond to the the lake at Udaipur would sweep past the Taj Mahal and and land straight on the lake in Udaipur, which is 250 miles away. Um, Vijay Armitage, the the famous tennis player, um, was a friend of Cubby's and Barbara's and Dana's, and uh, um, they brought him down to the studio and. Um, said, you know, maybe we could use him in the movie. Uh, the only part I could think of was the, the snake charmer um, come um, agent, their man in India, if you like. And uh, I mentioned this to Vijay, and he said, oh, I hate snakes. And in fact, we all laughed so much, we decided to put the line in the film. Um, so he became the, the, the snake charmer. And um, together with quite a n number of us on the unit, we were all a bit terrified of these snakes. And when we came to shoot the scene, I always remember the, the snakes were running away because they never perform as they're supposed to perform. Um, and the, the snakes were running off in every direction. And it was really funny to see VJ together with myself going around and grabbing these snakes and shoving them back in the basket, whereas a month before, we wouldn't have gone anywhere near them. But um, they told us the snake charmer had uh, convinced us that uh, these snakes have been milked the first, mo you know, the previous morning, so that their um, venom was uh, inactive, if you like. Uh, I hope he was right because uh, we we didn't get a bite to put him to the test. The lake at um, Udaipur was um, the setting for um, the palace where Octopussy lives with her, all her girls who work in the circus as well. So um, this was her hideaway. And uh, we were very fortunate because the Maharaja of uh, Udaipur uh, was just uh, converting his palace, which was separate to Octopussy's pa palace on the mainland, converting it to a five-star luxury hotel. And it wasn't complete. Uh, when we arrived, so we didn't have any problem with other guests and etc. to throw out, uh, and we were able to dress it. Um, Peter Lamont and his crew uh, made a fine job of, of dressing all the outside areas. Um, the interiors, of course, we would shoot at Pyman Studios. Above the lake, you'll see there's a, a, what they call the Summer Palace, uh, and that that was in quite a good state of repair, although we could only use the exteriors. Again, we um, we used the um, 
Pinewood Studio facilities to do all the interiors. Um, but um, another feature, of course, we found out was that um, there had been, in fact, a, a boat which used to sail on the lake and was propelled by oars. And the remains of it we've discovered. And uh, Mike Turk was brought in and we actually rebuilt it completely, this love boat. And um, Octopus's girls used to row it across the lake to deliver anybody to her fortress island. Every Bond film has to have a casino sequence, doesn't it? It's um, essential. It's <laughs> and um, this was no exception. And uh, when I first uh, suggested to Roger that he should be driving around um, Udaipur in his white tuxedo uh, with a, a bow tie, he thought I was quite crazy. And I said, no, it'll look absolutely fantastic. It's a... Uh, the last thing in the world you would expect to find in uh, in India uh, in the middle of the day is a guy walk is a guy being driven around in a three wheel taxi, um, dressed for the casino, and uh, it proved to be a, a big success. No one even thinks twice about it. Shall we have another game, Major? Same state. Cubby and Roger would uh, occupy their waiting time, if you like, playing backgammon, and and in this scene we actually use backgammon in the in the sequence, and uh, Cubby was my technical advisor. <laughs> um, it, it did help an awful lot that um, that they played backgammon, the, the pair of them, because there is a lot of waiting time for the actors. And, um, you know, it's good that um, Cubby's aware of that. And, and uh, he used to um, enjoy playing for quite high stakes, I should imagine. I don't know what the position was at the end of the... Um, at the end of the film, who was winning and who was losing, but I should think it was pretty much even Stevens. Six and one, that should fit. Well, looks like the Major's got him. Why don't we make it interesting, Major? A double to 100,000 rupees. I can't accept. Not with your luck. You win. Well, I would have taken that double myself. Then uh, why don't you take over the Major's position? Uh, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Thank you, I'd be delighted. 100,000 rupees, then. Double six. It was not such a good double to accept after all, was it? Six. The stake is 200,000 rupees. Do you have the cash? Well, I think that this should be... Yeah, Louis Jordan's um, assistant was a, a, a very fine Indian actor called Kabir Bidi, who had moved to Hollywood and uh, was brought to our attention there. Um, very, very good-looking guy, and uh, he came over to Pinewood and... All the girls swooned in the office and uh, asked for his autograph and uh, generally made a fuss of him. And uh, very nice man, uh, good at action, um, fine stature. And uh, he was a great asset to us on the film. Um, you know, to get a man like that with the experience he had 
uh, was quite a find, and uh, the the casting uh, the casting people did a great job in finding him. The action sequences are so important on a Bond movie, and Bob Simmons, of course, um, was um, had been with all the Bonds from the very beginning, and. Uh, used to double for Sean Connery and uh, was a great friend of Sean's, I believe. And, um, you know, he was such an asset to have a, a guy of his experience. Uh, he, without a doubt, he was one of the finest stuntmen in the world. And, um, you know, I'd worked with him, uh, you know, when I was doing uh, uh, second unit uh, on the Bonds and uh, he'd always been a great help to me and uh, been you know, absolutely friendly, always giving me good advice. Um, I remember on the, uh, on I think it was a Spy Who Loved Me, uh, on the train sequence, um, uh, we used, uh, we had, there was a scene there where where Richard Kill was thrown out of the window of the train, and uh, Bob Simmons decided that he would double it himself. Sometimes he would delegate to um, Martin Grace, for instance, to do these things. But he he was such an expert at, at being thrown through windows, and uh, I questioned him about it, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to use real glass." real plate glass and all he did was put one scratch across the glass just to weaken it um, and then he was hurled through the window and spent the rest of the afternoon picking pieces of glass out of his back but uh, I thought nothing of it really. <laughs> Another man who had become part of the Bond team was Remy Julian, the, the French stunt driver team. Um, Remy I'd first met on the Italian job um, when I was an editor, and uh, uh, he didn't speak very much English, Remy, but um, somehow when you get an action director and a, and a stunt band together, you don't really need to speak the same language. You just draw lots of pictures, and uh, they, we seem to understand each other very well. Um, terrific stuff, and he had his team in India with us, and uh, uh, he had special uh, three-wheeled taxis made with boosted engines and boosted suspension and others that were capable of carrying cameras and uh, wouldn't, wasn't sufficient just to take one of the three-wheel three taxis. They have, each taxi has to be for a specific job and has to be engineered accordingly, and this is Remy's strength on his organisation. Um, and he's, you know, he has half a dozen drivers, including his two sons, um, and they did a, did a fantastic job. They were trained by the master, shall we say. Having VJ in the sequence, you had to have some reference to tennis. Um, so Michael Wilson and myself, when we were devising the sequence, we um, looked for a place that we could use a, a forehand smash and a <laughs> over smash and whatever during one of the fight sequences. And uh, that happened during, um, during one of the um, scenes. And I was able to use the policeman in the middle of the road, for instance, um, doing um, reacting as he would react to a tennis match, you know, left, right, left, right, left, right, and all these little little gags came into it. We always had about 5,000 people around us at wherever we went, and um, we'd ask for a crowd scene and we'd pay and we'd specify we wanted 500 people, and 5,000 would turn up, and uh, that presented a lot of problems because sometimes there wasn't any room to manoeuvre without hurting people, you know. Of course, they have their own film industry, and of course, it is reputed to be the, the largest film industry in the world. And uh, I've seen quite a few Indian films, and so, some of them go on for four or five hours, you know. 
there was no local film industry as such. It's all based in certain centres, and uh, they weren't near us. Uh, we did use as many local Indian uh, production facilities as we could, um, and uh, local, we call it local labour, but in fact, it, you know, people had to be bussed in and flown in from all over the place. We built the market on the set of Pinewood. Peter Lamont and uh, his team produced a, 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 a really authentic-looking Indian marketplace. So we had all the references, etc. Um, it was impossible, really, in uh, Udaipur to actually shoot some of those intricate scenes in detail, mainly because of the huge numbers of people that surrounded us all the time. Excuse me. Of course, we were very fortunate uh, to have John Barry back to do the music, and uh, uh, any Bond fan will tell you there's something about John Barry's music and Bond films that really go together. <laughs> and uh, I was very, very pleased. I hadn't worked with John since on the Majesty's Secret Service. Um, we'd missed him badly, and uh, although we'd had some very fine musicians uh, come in and do our films, somehow um, John Barry was like the originator, you know, the original, and um, he, he gave something to the scenes which uh, I don't think any other composer could ever possibly do. Um, it was just part of him, and I think he shared the same excitement that we all did with the Bond movies. certainly pays to advertise. This way, James. Fuck you. How are you? Most unhappy. A good fun in Q's workshop, of course, you know. I mean, Desmond, a wonderful, memorable character who provided a huge amount of fun, not only for the audience, but for the crew that worked with him. A uh, very generous man, and um, the man who spent um, a large time during the war as a prisoner in Germany. There's an interesting story. He went for a publicity tour to Germany, and the interviewer asked him if he'd uh, visited Germany before, and uh, he smiled and said, oh, yes, he said, I was a guest here for five years. <laughs> Experimental model. Hello, Smithers. Commander. Smashing, Q. Come along. I've got a few things for you. Very nice, Smithers. Q. Is the homing device ready yet, Q? Not only a homing device, but an extremely delicate microphone as well. Goes in there like that. Now, take a fountain pen, twist the top, and a highly concentrated mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acid dissolves all metals. Wonderful for poison pen letters. Pay attention, 007. Now, pull the top off the pen. Now, with this ultra sensitive earpiece, you can listen in on the bug. The homing device is compatible with the standard-issue radio directional finder in your watch. 
if you haven't lost it. Technology is improving all the time, and new things, new gadgets were were coming in all the time. And the and the um, in America and Japan, they were producing these TV wristwatches at that time. It was sort of a gimmick; you could hardly see anything, but they did actually work. Funnily enough, um, I think it was a, a crystal screen, and um, you know, it was something we wanted to be. If there was something new coming out, it had to be in a Bond movie. Um, so, you know, we, we incorporated this technology into the script and uh, we had sort of fake wristwatches made and we actually uh, placed the images on by, uh, by trickery, shall we say. It was done in the post-production. We, we just uh, had a little black screen and made a mat and uh, in the post-production we inserted um, the image that we wanted to. But, of course, one, one of the problems is that you have to keep the... Um, you have to keep the watch perfectly still. So quite often the actor's hand was in a vice <laughs> while we were shooting the watch, <laughs> which could be very uncomfortable. Um, there was a very romantic scene between Christina Wayborn and Roger Moore um, by the swimming pool, um, beautifully, beautifully lit uh, by Alan Hume, our cameraman. And we had a Miss World in the scene as well. I'm glad. Are you? Well, let's put it this way. Up to now, you are the least lethal and by far the prettiest of Kamau's friends that I've come across. Thank you. So does he have a proposition for me or do you? He suggests the trade. The egg for your life. Well, I'd heard the price of eggs was going up, but isn't that a little high? Charge it to, uh, room. Oh, 27. Along with the champagne, I suppose. I leave it at the desk. You don't mind. Why has Kamal forgotten what I look like already? It's for me. So that if I should depart this world, suddenly you'll have something to remember me by? Something like that. The interesting thing about Christine Wayborn's costume, um, she, she wore a sari in the film, and there was a very good reason for it. Um, I'd, when I, I'd always thought that the sari would be a great way to escape from a, a, an upper window, shall we say, rather like you do with bed sheets, knotted bed sheets. And uh, I got together with the costume designer, and uh, we got some very strong material, shall we say, reinforced material at the same time. It looked absolutely beautiful. And uh, Christine then just winds down from the bedroom window to escape. She just does a... And she's very athletic, Christine. And, um, you know, we practiced this in the studio, and um, she was very adept at it. She, would, she just fell out of the window backwards and uh, without a problem. No stunt, stunt girl involved. Um, although, in the exterior scene, we used a stunt girl. It kind of worked for us very well. Um, the octopusy on her back was a, a, a transfer, but it had to be done properly, and uh, we had an artist there with a brush making sure it looked authentic. Um, the Rolls-Royce that Kamal Khan um, uses 
belonged to the Maharaja. All the Maharajas seem to have wonderful collections of old cars, classic cars, and they're in beautiful conditions because they don't really do any miles. You know, the, the roads are very limited. And um, some of these cars are, uh, haven't got 5,000 miles on the clock, you know, incredible with the age of the cars. Um, I think that um, possibly um, India was the most exotic location, certainly, that we've, we've ever used. And uh, presented us with fantastic opportunities for something new. Uh, the thing is, when you make Bond movies, you have to be original. Um, you can't produce an action sequence which people have seen on television, you know. It has to be something that only you can do on film, and only a Bond company can actually have the resources to do that type of stunt. And uh, we're always looking for something original. It's very, very difficult to do. <laughs> and the sari, I think, gave us that opportunity. Beautiful view, isn't it? I don't know how to say goodbye. Actions speak louder than words. You're so right. It was a good opportunity here to um, to use this love boat which uh, Mike Turk had built with J John Richardson, and uh, it was although it was um, appears to be powered by these beautiful girls. In fact, there was a discreetly uh, discreet engine hidden away somewhere underneath, which just gave them a bit of assistance, shall we say? Um, a lot of the actual shots here were shot at the. Lake Palace Hotel and the uh, where the unit was staying, it was um, it doubled as a place where we 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 slept and we ate and we relaxed. Um, we used the and it was the shortest travelling time to any location I've ever been on. I think <laughs> we just turned out, of, rolled out of bed, and you were on the set. Um, very very nice place, very romantic place. Maud Adams uh, played the lead. Uh, in the movie, and uh, we'd considered um, all kinds of uh, different actresses throughout the week or throughout the world to play the part of Octopussy. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, Cubby turned to me and he said, Of all the girls we've seen, there's no one as beautiful as Maud. And uh, it's been some time now since she appeared in a Bond movie, and uh, I met her recently in Hollywood, he said, and uh, she looked absolutely fabulous. and. Uh, decision we made there and then that, that Maud would be the first, I think, first girl to appear in two Bond movies, although she was made a fleeting uh, appearance in another one I did, which was uh, View to a Kill. So that's a good trivia question for you. The blue-ringed octopus that we featured in the film, in fact, they do exist. Um, I've never heard of a tame one, mind you, so we decided we'd have to make our own octopus. 
and uh, John Richardson, our special effects supervisor, um, and his team uh, produced a, a, a wonderful blue ringed octopus that um, that was worked on air, I believe, and uh, it manipulated its tentacles and um, was a great prop in the movie. Um, supposed to be a deadly, um, a deadly creature, and. Uh, uh, one of John's assistants became absolutely expert at um, pumping it up with enough air to make it look really natural. Um, I remember some years later that uh, a friend of mine at the golf club said, I was cursing you the other day. He said, my son, he said, uh, asked to see the Bond movie and uh, I took him to see it. And uh, when the octopus came out of the tank, um, my son closed his eyes, covered his eyes because he was so frightened. and. Uh, Next day, he said, would you take me to see it again so I can see the octopus? And then the second time he went to see it, the kid covered his eyes again. And, and, the, and on the third time, I think his father held his hand so he couldn't cover his eyes so he could see it and stop seeing my movie. <laughs> the um, scenes at the Summer Palace um, were very interesting. Uh, we used the exteriors. Uh, with foreground, uh, we built the foreground bars and the windows uh, Peter Lamont supplied, and we shot through those um, to give the impression that, um, you know, so we then matched that in the studio, the reverses, and uh, the interior scenes, of course, were shot at Pinewood. Um, some beautiful workmanship. Um, we're very fortunate. We have such clever carpenters and painters and... Uh, people that really take a pride in their work. Well, so far I can't complain about the valet service. Dinner, eight o'clock. Rogers held kind of captive in Kamal's summer palace. And again, Peter Lamont excelled himself on the set, uh, complete with chandeliers and circular s staircase, which um, <laughs> I'd, I'd seen the set after Peter had built it, and he'd built the staircase straight. And I said, no, no, Peter, I must have a circular staircase, because later on, when the action scene comes here, I want, to, um, I want Bond to come down, slide down the banister, with it blazing away with his machine gun. And uh, I must have a curved staircase, so it was back to the drawing board, and they changed it all for me. The dressings on the table, you know, you, when you look at it, you go on the set for the first time, and, and uh, there's all this exotic fruit, you know, displayed. And uh, uh, the prop man, he, he sprays it all with some kind of solution to keep it fresh looking. Um, so I've often seen people sort of go and steal a grape or something and then spit it out because it tastes so awful. <laughs> Um, I think the Let me guess. the food was incredible, really, when you look at it, um, you know, when it's revealed to Bond. It, um, uh, it, <laughs> it's uh, quite, um, quite a work of art. A bit crude, very unreliable. We prefer a curare with an effective psychedelic compound. Guaranteed results. But with permanent brain damage. An unfortunate side effect. Um, I suppose no dinner scene in the Eastern country is complete without having a sheep's eye on the menu. And uh, that gave us a lot of fun. And uh, the chef at um, 
at Pinewood Studios did a wonderful job of making a, a mock eye, a mock sheep eyes, which was, uh, which was edible. Um, it did look very real. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, uh, to eat it would take a lot of nerve, but um, provided a nice moment, a nice touch in the film. Um, humor and suspense, I think. Oh, uh, thank you for dinner. Again, you see um, the circular staircase is always featured uh, so that it's established in the audience's mind for later. Um, you, it's what we call setting up something, you know, you set it up and use it. Um, it's very important that um, you suggest these things ahead of time in a way, subconsciously. Then we had, of course, the scene where, where Bond, you can't keep him in his room for long, although he's locked in, he's not going to be there for very long, is he? And, um, of course, he makes his way to uh, Christine's room around the balustrade of the balcony, and um, this was done mainly in the studio at Pinewood. Uh, he has, not before, he has to um, use one of Q's devices, the magic fountain pen, to dissolve put acid on the bars and uh, and uh, dissolve the metal. It's an amazing mix, really, of uh, authentic shots we did in India and uh, close shots of uh, the studio. Um, anyone walking around a, um, a building like that on the balustrade, um, I, I use my pigeon as always to frighten people. You know, so you get suddenly you get a moment of quiet, and then suddenly a burst of noise makes people jump. And uh, I love to sit at the back of the, the cinema and see everyone leap in the air about a foot. Um, I think it's um, quite satisfying in a way to make people react. Um, hope we don't give anybody a heart attack. Of course, the. All the lights go on, and of course the helicopter arrives. Uh, again, Peter was ingenious, and um, we shot this in Pinewood on the Pinewood lot. Um, uh, he constructed a helicopter pad, uh, and if you look carefully, you see one or two lights in the background, which we couldn't avoid. But uh, uh, we used this um, Russian helicopter again, very similar to the one we used on For Your Eyes Only, and. Um, uh, of course, my, my friend Stephen Burkhoff makes his uh, appearance, and um, I must admit I love working with him. I, he's, he's, uh, he's such an extrovert character, he's just right for a Bond movie. This uh, whole sequence um, was quite intricate in the, in the planning. Um, it develops um, throughout the scene, lots of suspense, and. Uh, with Bond finding his way out of the room and and outwitting the guards and getting into position to hear what's going on. Very important plot points are discussed here about the egg and going to, the key word I think was going to East Germany, going to uh, a town there, um, Karl Markstadt uh, is mentioned. And, uh, and this gives uh, Bond the, the motivation, the reason uh, to go to East Germany.
Bond uses his uh, Q equipment again. He's got his wristwatch with a, uh, a location detector on it and uh, and a bug with an earpiece. Um, inside the egg, he's planted a device, a Q device, and it enables him to to listen into the conversation. Good. Have it put aboard the helicopter. Is it a year? All this um, was, was shot in the studio at Pyman and some very astute set building, um, very well lit. And of course, with Stephen Burkhoff, I couldn't resist using the magnifying glass to emphasize his crazy eyes. Um, unfortunately, like everything else, all good, best plans go wrong and uh, the hair dryer interferes with his sound and uh, frustrates him from uh, picking up vital information. Um, the, the, the bomb that's loaded onto the, uh, the helicopter is first shown here and um, uh, again was over a combination between the art department and John Richardson to get uh, a piece of equipment that really appeared to work. Of course, um, it has to look absolutely authentic and be beautifully engineered. Everything taken care of? As you ordered, Excellence. So, uh, you recovered it. From an accomplice of the thief. He must be eliminated at once. There must be no further security breach. This fake has caused enough trouble. Terrible moment when the Fabergé egg is smashed and Louis recovers the bug and knows that someone's been listening. Of course, um, Bond finds himself locked in the cold store, um, which um, is not a very pleasant place to spend the night, I must say. Um, again, to, to make all the props uh, look authentic, you know, the, all the frozen meat, etc. Um, we did with, with a kind of a paint, we, we sprayed on a kind of a frosting, if you like. and. Um, Roger has to find a way out. You know, you can't go to India and not use elephants. Um, 
uh, Michael Wilson and myself and um, Dick Maybon, when we were going through, we, we tried to, you know, put scenes in the film which would um, relate to India and um, uh, the, this whole sequence, you know, being uh, Bond being carried out as though he's a dead man uh, in a uh, in a sack. Uh, I mean, it's it's, it's high humour, isn't it? Really, as well as um, being rather, um, you know, the, the spooky in the fact that these chaps are d dumping the the bodies on the rubbish dump and uh, they dump Roger out and. Uh, uh, he suddenly comes to life, and uh, it's great fun, and the kids love that stuff. And uh, then, of course, it, we're, we're suddenly in the Maharani's garden. The Maharaja um, hosted us at a, uh, a cocktail party and uh, before we started shooting. And as I walked in, uh, into his palace, the first thing I noticed was a stuffed tiger in the hallway. So when I engaged him in conversation, I just jokingly said to him, Do you know, could we borrow your tiger? And uh, he agreed. He said, yeah, absolutely, help yourself. So I spoke to the prop man, and uh, we went and borrowed the tiger and um, put it, mounted it on a wheelbarrow. And uh, that's what we used in the movie. We, we just ran it through a bush, and uh, Roger did his stuff. Sit. And then, of course, we went back to Pinewood and re re recreated uh, a bit of the jungle. And um, we managed to get the, um, Jimmy Chipperfield to produce a couple of tigers for us and uh, uh, managed to do that stuff. And uh, of course, you know, you use um, animals. There was a funny story, I think, with, uh, with the tiger. When we were on the stage, uh, the trainer said, um, you know, if the animal gets out of the cage, whatever you do, don't run, just keep perfectly still. And the second unit were doing the shot, Arthur Worcester was, uh, was photographing it, uh, the tiger. Um, prowling through the undergrowth, and uh, he got his camera sort of adjacent to the cage, uh, shooting between the bars. When suddenly the the tiger leapt eight feet in the air, leapt straight out of the cage onto the stage, and within seconds, the only people that were visible was Barbara Broccoli and the continuity girl, who just stood their ground. They listened to the tiger, but I'm sure they were pretty scared, and I think the tiger was pretty scared as well. Um, the, the chase, the hunt through the, the jungle was really fun to do, and uh, I love working with animals. And uh, the, uh, the howdahs that are placed on top of the um, on top of the elephants um, uh, are very rocky. If you ever ride in one, it's um, it's not as smooth as it looks. Um, one of the stuntmen we were using um, on the film was Cubby's son-in-law, Pat Banter, uh, who. Uh, was a male model, very successful in Hollywood, but also a very good athlete, a great swimmer, great climber. We used him in several films. Um, he did what something that Johnny Weissmuller did very well, but uh, not many stuntmen can do, and that is actually to to perform the the Tarzan feat of swinging from tree to tree on a vine. 
uh, it's very hard on the on the arms. But uh, Pat succeeded very well. And later on, we um, we we got the um, the Tarzan sound from uh, MGM in Hollywood, and put it over, and it was great. There was no jungle film would be complete without the without a leech. Um, my mind always goes back to um, Shepton Studios when I was a kid, and uh, they were filming. Um, with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn out on the uh, out on the lot, and uh, they constructed a, a sim very similar set, and uh, we used um, crocodiles and all sorts. The lake itself is, is quite beautiful at this area. Um, uh, before we went shooting there, I was asked when I was on the reconnaissance by the medical people to take samples of water. And um, I asked Alan Hume if he would be kind enough to, um, well, he volunteered to collect samples of water from the lake, uh, from the hotel, from the bottled water, so they could be analysed in London before our unit set, set out for India. And uh, the lake was absolutely lethal, apparently although the local kids always swam in it. Um, we worry about the Thames, but um, we had nothing to worry about. Um, uh, the water, the bottled water wasn't too good either, and uh, the best water was actually in the tap, believe it or not. Producers of venom that's invariably fatal in seconds. Another actor that we, we used, uh, who had been in a previous Bond movie, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, played the part of Sadruddin. That was Albert Moses. Um, we brought him in from England and uh, he, he played a, a good role for us. Island full of beautiful women. No men allowed. Really? Sexual discrimination. I'll definitely have to pay it a visit. I think uh, the piece de resistance was, um, was the crocodile. I mean, uh, John Richardson and his team constructed this device, which was like a little miniature boat with a little windscreen on it and everything. And... Um, Again, Roger raised his eyebrows more than usual, if you like, um, when he saw that device. And he said, I'm going in that. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, it'd be a wonderful device. So it got a huge laugh, and indeed it did. Um, not only did it get a huge laugh when the, the jaws opened to, to reveal Roger, um, but it also got an equally large la laugh at the end when the jaws snapped shut again. Uh, great device and um, something that, you know, just comes out of thinking what could we possibly use here on the lake. Good evening. I wondered when you might arrive. So you are the mysterious octopusy. And you are James Bond, 007 licensed to kill. Am I to be your target for tonight? Well, not necessarily. 
depends how much you tell me about jewelry smuggling. And why one it's strange when you look at the, these films down, you, you, do, you dodge from um, location in India to the studio in Pinewood. Um, with that absolutely seamless, I mean, it gives you an idea of the skill that's involved, not only with the production designer, but all the people that work on the movie that make, that make it look real, the people who dress the sets. Um, the octopus is always featured, of course, and it's always there as a, a, a menacing. You know, again, that you're setting it up for a scene that's going to happen later on. Um, which I was a bit worried about uh, initially how we were going to get this octopus to actually perform, if you like, when it attacks the man. But in fact, it, it's amazing really how, um, how a, an object like that, if the man is a good actor, can make it appear that uh, the octopus is attacking him. And in fact, it's the other way around. It's the man who's manipulating the octopus. He was my father. I'd hoped fate would bring us together one day. To avenge him? No, to thank you for giving him an honorable alternative. Come in. It was very important um, to have a variety, different variety of girls surrounding octopusy, and uh, I wanted the long and the short of it, and uh, Cherry uh, Gillespie was uh, the short of it, shall we say. She used to be with a pop group. I'd like you to meet my new house guest. Uh, an old friend of the family, you might say. How lovely. You have a nasty habit of surviving. Well, you know what they say about the fittest? Dr. Pussy, I would enjoy another opportunity to take care of Mr. Bond personally. I will take care of Mr. Bond myself. Good night. Uh, we were very conscious always of to try and keep the Fleming story um, going, the, all the characters and the, and the wonderful feeling that he gave to his stories. And uh, every opportunity we got, we'd run out of, uh, we'd only have, we only had the short stories now to work with, um, but we used to develop them. And, and sometimes we used bits and pieces from other Fleming things. It's just a, a question of um, making it as authentic as possible. Um, it's very difficult to to imitate Fleming, really. I mean, uh, it's a great, great sadness that he didn't write more books, really. Show Mr. Bond to his room. Good night, Mr. Bond. I know that uh, one day, uh, we were, I think when we were shooting the scene uh, with Roger and Maud, um, Maud brought her mother down on the set, and she must have been well into her 70s, most beautiful, elegant woman. And uh, I said to Maud, I can see where you got your good looks from. Um, another interesting um, uh, prop that we used was, um, was the device that um, Kamal Khan used, uh, his henchman used. Um, it was the nearest thing I could find to a yo-yo. I always remember the kids with the yo-yos going up and down. And I spoke to John Richardson and said I was very anxious to use something that the children could relate to, uh, if you like, and would recognize. And uh, he devised this most fantastic prop, which actually worked. It did work like a yo-yo. It was like a circular saw that came down 
and return to the sender, if you like. And uh, it actually did it. And uh, after the movie was finished and it worked so successfully, um, John mounted it on a, a wooden plate and presented it to Cubby Broccoli uh, as a memento of the film. The scenes that we did with uh, Q on the riverbank, we didn't take Q to India, I don't think. And we had to recreate his scenes with a double and do the reverses at uh, Pinewood Studio. Permission to smuggle a consignment of diamonds. I discovered I had a talent for it. So you went into business for yourself? Yes, but I needed an organization, so I revived the old octopus cult. Well then, where did you recruit all these lovelies? There are many of them. All of a sudden... I think the the scenes in Octopus's Palace, which we, you know, we sometimes we shot the, the, the there were two islands, I'd better explain, uh, at Udaipur. One, one island, um, the Lake Palace Hotel was situated on, which uh, was very exotic. And, and the second island was kind of disused. It still had the most beautiful um, landing stages and uh, certain superficial parts of it uh, were still there. And uh, Peter Lamont um, refurbished everything there that he could, um, the landing stage, etc., and uh, the entrance onto the island was still in pretty good shape. But fortunately for us, it had it had been got a bit overgrown, and uh, it had a terrific character. Um, I remember that we shot, uh, for instance, the birds used to roost in the in one of the trees on the island, and. Uh, I, I got someone to fire a gun and take a photograph of all these birds rising in the sky, which was very dramatic. Um, something that I, I, you know, again, I, I love to use these things to make people jump, and uh, it worked very, very well indeed. I suppose when you look at some of the sets, you realize that it's a production designer's dream to, to have a, a film uh, set here. Uh, the colors are so beautiful, and. Uh, uh, it just gets people away from their humdrum lives sometimes if you're looking at one of these movies and you know you're in the depths of a, an English winter or an American winter shall we say just suddenly you're um, transported aren't you? you you just start to think about your holidays really uh, one thing that uh, Peter did which was absolutely fantastic is Octopus's bed um, I, I'll never forget when uh, when this came on the screen to an audience for the first time, the huge reaction it got. Um, it's only on the, on the screen for a split second, but they get it straight away. I mean, I guess they Bond audiences expect this sort of thing, but uh, uh, I was amazed at the reaction um, that, that, it, that it had. the saddest scenes, if you like, was uh, v the exit of VJ. Um, oh, he said to me, you're not going to kill me, are you? <laughs> uh, I said, well, you know, it happens, happens in, in movies. Don't take it personally.
but um, the idea of these guys appearing out of nowhere was good, and it was a great surprise. Uh, again, the yo-yo was used, and the birds accentuate the, the drama. Uh, I love to use things like that too. Not show the violence. I mean, I think that you know Bond movies are basically a family movie, and I think it's more dramatic, funnily enough, to show the um, death of someone by cutting to away at that particular point to something else unrelated, but um, a startled bird or a flock of birds taking off, anything that kind of creates a scream and hides the the reality of the violence. played the, the part of the, uh, who wields the yo-yo, um, was a, a very nice man. He wasn't a, really an actor. He was more of a, an athlete, I guess. He was, a, he was someone we chose because of his stature. And uh, on the set of Pinewood, we constructed a, a balcony. And from this balcony, um, the man was going to hurl the yo-yo down at Bond. And, um, Unknown to anyone on the crew, uh, this man had gone along and taken away the supporting struts for the superstructure uh, because they interfered with his um, uh, him walking around the the, ballast, the the balcony. So he, on his own volition, decided to remove these struts. He probably asked someone to do it, and no one knew about it, but. If he'd consulted the art department, they could have told him that the structure was now unsafe. And when he put his weight against it, in the middle of the take, he f the, the, the balustrade gave way and he hurtled towards the ground. Um, the stunt arranger on that particular scene was Paul Weston. I shall never forget the quickness of mind of Paul when he saw that man actually falling while we all stood open mouthed watching it happen, Paul rushed out into the set and shoulder charged him as he hit the ground and, and broke his fall and saved him from um, really serious injuries. I mean, he did break an arm, um, but um, that's pretty serious. But it could have been a lot worse. He could have broken his neck if Paul hadn't responded so quickly. Of course, when. Um, when women, women have to fire guns on stage, um, you know, the great thing is for them not to close their eyes. And, uh, you know, I, I think they did pretty well. I think Maud did pretty well as well. Um, there's an interesting story with the, um, the crocodile or alligator we used. Um, when he arrived at Pinewood Studios, where Peter Lamont had constructed a set with a tank, and um, the crocodile duly arrived in a tank and with its trainer, uh, unfortunately, it was um, going through a period of hibernation and was very, very inactive. In fact, he was fast asleep. 
but the show has to go on, so um, we tried heating the water up to no avail, and eventually we managed to get the, uh, the creature into the water, and I said to the handler, we have to dress you up um, um, a double for Roger Moore, and you're going to have to wrestle with the crocodile and make it appear that the crocodile is in fact wrestling with you. And, and that worked very, very well. Uh, after we completed the sequence, um, they went to put the, uh, the crocodile back in its tank, which he, to transport it back away from the studios. And uh, it w it suddenly woken up and disappeared into the set underneath all the um, uh, underneath all the wire netting, and uh, it was impossible to get him out. And for two weeks, that creature was in hibernation under the set of Pinewood Studios and didn't want to leave. Eventually, they took the set down and uh, exposed the crocodile, and they were able to recover him. The scenes in Berlin were interesting because, again, we were in the height of the, the Cold War, and uh, we had to do a scene at Checkpoint Charlie, um, uh, which was quite uh, nervous, actually, a nervous moment for us, really, because uh, the place was heavily guarded. And, um, you know, I wanted to be authentic. I wanted to show the real Checkpoint Charlie. It was quite a famous crossing point, and uh, a lot of people knew it. And uh, we, I guess we could have reconstructed it. But, uh, in fact, you, there is a little bit of no man's land that you can go through. So, in fact, we, we actually drove through and then turned over and then turned round in the uh, no man's land bit and headed straight back into West Berlin. Um, an interesting uh, city, particularly at that time. Uh, you know, you see the Brandenburg Gate very clearly and uh, all the, this ugly wall that went round. Thank goodness that's down now. And it's hard to believe when you look back on the situation at that time. The, the filming of the circus was very, very interesting. Peter Lamont constructed a, a big top on the set at Pinewood, and uh, we, we shot outside. Uh, we had a very big crowds, you know, over 500 people, uh, a lot of children involved. So it was a big production for us to, to manage. Um, also, the um, knife-throwing twins have to actually perform and uh, we did that uh, like with a series of uh, techniques. Um, we, I'm not sure, I think we used, um, we probably used a dummy to, to, uh, of the guy turning around on the thing with a, the actual, just to get one shot where you see both twins together. Um, and then we, we did um, shots of the knife um, on the turntable, and we did it in reverse, if I remember right. We took the, we took the, uh, the knives out instead of putting them in. Um, always intercut. It's very useful, having been an editor, actually, that you can actually break these things down into small segments and shoot them that way to perfect them. Um, certainly, the catching the knife was done in reverse, which um, is a useful trick and old, old as the hills, actually, in terms of technique. Um, but these, these old tracks still work, you know, they've been, Buster Keaton used them and we still use them. A stuntman that um, I'd known for many years and worked on several bomb pictures was uh, Dickie Graydon, or Lord Graydon, as he was sometimes known. 
and uh, he was quite a, a small in stature. And I thought it would be ideal for my, my vision of um, the man that's fired from the cannon. And um, suddenly I was talking to the costume designer about what he should be wearing, and I'd always visualised him as having these gossamer wings. And uh, of course, Dickie Great, and it was a great opportunity for him to star. And he took full advantage of it. He was absolutely perfect for it. And uh, it's quite useful, in fact, having a stuntman to perform this role. Um, the fact that we could actually, well, we didn't fire him out of the cannon, but he was, he, he appeared to fall, he appeared to be fired out of the cannon. We had some sort of spring device in, in, loaded inside that gave him the momentum. And then we actually fired a dummy. Um, from the cannon, and uh, it, it worked very well indeed. In fact, that, all the circus stuff was absolutely fantastic. We had to get a ringmaster. Uh, we had to bring in acts from all over Europe, you know, to fill in. We had the elephants that uh, came from Germany, and a wonderful elephant trainer there came along, and he, he was so concerned about his elephants and how he fed them. I mean, the, the logistical problems uh, for, for Tom Bevesner were quite amazing, and... Uh, they overcame them, and, uh, and all the animals were very comfortable and made a fuss of uh, by the crew. Um, I know the German trainer, for instance, created... Uh, we were doing that scene um, for Octopus's Palace, and um, um, the ramp that we needed for the elephants to come up had to be strengthened because um, he was the, the German trainer was, was worried that the, the elephants would crash through the wood with their extreme weight, so we had to beef up all the... Um, the ramp so that they can gain access to the stage. Just arrived from Leningrad. Hmm, of style. The Romanov star. The construction of the bomb was very good, and uh, it had to be portable, and uh, it had to appear to be authentic. And um, Peter did a lot of research, Peter Lamont, and uh, to, uh, to make sure it worked. All the electronics were done by a specialist firm, and um, had to be welded into the compartment in the train. Um, we used the Neen Valley Railway for, as a location um, for the. Um, for the train sequence, and uh, it's, a, it's a private railway, and it has authentic trains that would have been used in East Germany at that time. They were still using steam engines there because they had lots of coal, and the economy was very poor. Um, one of the scenes called for um, for Roger to hide under the under the train, and um, he has to sort of um, pick himself up and cling to the the underside of the train as it goes in the tunnel. Um, I wanted to get shots of Roger as it approached the tunnel, and I ha we had to make a, a rig. Chunky Hughes, our grip, constructed a, um, a very clever rig under the train made of scaffold poles. And uh, because I was worried about the weight, um, I suggested that I didn't go on it, that, um, you know, I just had Roger in position and, uh, uh, you know, the camera crew, two men and uh, the camera. Uh, slung underneath the train as it entered the tunnel. And uh, when I suggested this to Roger, uh, he said, if you don't go on it, I'm not going on it. So I had to, I also had to go on it. But I, really, I, I was just worried about the extra weight. Ha ha. <laughs> um, 
The tunnel at um, in the Neen Valley Railway suited us perfectly. It was quite a long tunnel, and it was the ideal place for them to switch the bomb um, and to continue into um, with the circus, so it comes back into into uh, the, the into West Germany. Um, again, the, the, the circus um, element helps us a lot. You know, the fact they're transporting all the props from the circus. Um, gives you great opportunities. And twist the lever a quarter turn clockwise. Be at least 20 miles away when it goes off. Hmm? I didn't really ever get a first draft of the script of Octopussy. I mean, I was involved with its development uh, right from the word go, right when George MacDonald Fraser was writing the story, and uh, we had a diff completely different story. Uh, we used um, uh, certain parts of it. I think probably the element about India probably came into our equation because George MacDonald Fraser has written a lot of Flashman books about India. And that was where the first inkling about India came in. So, I mean, I worked on, on you know, the developing the, uh, the story, not as closely as Michael Wilson would do with, um, I think Richard Maybaum came in later on. Um, and they they were, you know, worked out, but at the same time that they were working on the script, I was working on the action development, uh, dreaming up the pre-title scene and stuff like that, and uh, casting it. So the, the two operations go on simultaneously, and that's also coupled with location records where we go around the world and look for lo likely locations, get ideas, come back, incorporate them in the script. So it's quite unique, a Bond film. You don't really start with a script, you start with an idea which can change completely after the, you know, maybe two or three weeks or four weeks. And, uh, I enjoyed working with George MacDonald Fraser, a very talented chap, and quite a few of his ideas were retained in the film. Um, nice man to work with. One of Bob Simmons' protégés was Martin Grace, and uh, Martin was a, um, a fantastic um, athlete. Bob was kind of training him to take over when Bob couldn't do it anymore, and it was reaching, kind of reaching that stage. And um, Martin was chosen to uh, double for Bond as he climbs along the outside of the train. Um, it was a second, basically a second unit operation. My second unit director, Arthur Worcester, was in charge of it. And uh, uh, Martin had checked the railway line and made sure that uh, the, the section of track that we were using was clear of obstructions. Because this was a kind of an amateur operation, the railway, and uh, they used volunteers and uh, to maintain the track and what have you. And uh, um, so when we came to do these shots, um, you know, it was very important. Safety is, is always a very important factor with, with, when you're doing dangerous sequences. And um, Martin uh, was in the middle of doing the sequence, and uh, Arthur was filmed from a helicopter. Uh, there must have been a breakdown in communication because um, they exceeded uh, the stretch that they had previously checked out, and uh, there was an obstruction on the line. And Martin Grace was uh, felled by a piece of pipe that stuck out, and uh, he was struck. At, the train was probably doing 25 miles an hour or 30 miles an hour. We rushed him to hospital by helicopter, and uh, I went to see him a few days later, and he was sitting up in bed and being as being cheerful as 
which is a wonderful part of his character. Um, but he was out of action for the rest of the movie, unfortunately, and uh, eventually made a complete recovery. But uh, um, the sort of accidents one must have always avoid if possible. Why is that bomb on the trail? The following uh, days were a bit fraught, really, with Martin uh, so seriously hurt, and uh, we had to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and keep going. The film must go on. Uh, Paul Weston took over Martin's role, um, you know, running around on the train, outside the train, and he did a great job, um, particularly considering uh, what had happened. And the sequence was, was finished and uh, was completed on time. Um, I think the, um, that whole sort of train area uh, is always very exciting in Bond movies. Um, we've used them in, you know, Russia with Love and Spy Love Me, and now on on Octopussy. Um, Cubby had a, uh, a particular. Um, he particularly liked trains. He found them. He found them exciting, and I think most people do, particularly steam trains. Um, the the actual um, escape uh, from the train where. Um, you know, where Bond leaps off the train. Um, when you look at the some of the stuntmen, um, you know, you, you realise what a dangerous job it is they do and um, how light-hearted they are about it. You know, they just they just do it as their job. You know, amazing. That's how some people do for a living. One of the scenes that, that I've always been keen on, a good, great visual gag, is, is a car on a railway track. You know, if you can kind of go out of the norm, you expect to see a train on the track. When you see a car on the track, it's kind of funny, you know. And uh, it didn't exactly, the Mercedes didn't exactly fit the railway track. We had to kind of make a modification slightly. John Richardson, great engineer, he did that. And, um, uh, you know, the idea of the Mercedes catching up with the train and transferring was appealed to me greatly, and uh, it, it, it also um, it lends itself for the finale where uh, the scene where the Mercedes is wiped out by an express train coming in the opposite direction. Um, that's always a shock, you know, and we, we achieved um, we achieved the shot of the express train coming. Uh, we used a mirror on the train. Um, so that we, we got the impression that uh, the, the, the two were coming together. Um, Peter Lamont again supplied a, 
full-length mirror and uh, enabled us to to do this shot here, which is the train coming. It was reflected into a mirror. Um, then John Regison fired the Mercedes from an air ram, uh, which is a very like a huge air cannon, and the car is actually fitted. Um, with the long shaft into this hydraulic machine and it's pumped up under terrific pressure and uh, released and uh, uh, I think it was Dickie Graydon was another one of the stuntmen that was in the boat on the lake and uh, John Richardson who's an expert at this he he's really cut it quite fine it actually just clipped the boat I mean it couldn't have been better better timing but if I'd been one of the stuntmen I'd have been very worried <laughs> Khan says we are to stay here until we cross the border. The license plate is General Orloff's. We have discovered this. Where is General Orlov now? He was last reported heading towards the border. Of course, um, Stephen Burkhoff um, has his uh, death scene in this in this area of the film, and uh, uh, true to life, um, when he read the script and he saw what I was planning to do with the train, I mean, he just he was so enthusiastic about it. And uh, the great thing about Stephen is that is to is to keep him within within bounds, shall we say, because he has such a wide range. Uh, he's he's such a fine actor. You can. He can do anything, and he, he, he sort of tests you in a way. He tries things, and I love that with an actor. He, he experiments, and sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't, you know, and uh, sometimes you have to say to him, look, take it down a bit, Steve, and it's a little bit over the top. Uh, Walter Gotell. Um, also had an accident here. He was, we were doing the scene where um, they arrive at the border crossing and uh, Walter Cattell arrives by helicopter and he runs after the train and uh, railway sleepers are not the best things to, to run on, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, with the chippings in between the sleepers, it, it, makes, it makes for bad footing. And, uh, um, and one of the scenes, Walter stumbled and fell and uh, cut his face badly, but what a what a what a pro! You know, we we patched him up and put some makeup on it, and he was back there in, within half an hour. You know. skin thing really appealed to me I don't know I must have a childish sense of humor I think but uh, 
it was an opportunity too good to miss, getting Roger to hide in the, in the ape skin um, was, I think, very, very funny and uh, something I love to do. I mean, it's, 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 the humour is quite amazing, really. It's, you, you have to, uh, with a Bond movie, you can go so far, you mustn't, go, you mustn't cross a line to, to vaudeville, but you can get pretty close to it sometimes. And uh, um, I love visual humour, and uh, this, this film provided great moments. I take it none of you will be late. I'm sure that uh, Octopussy is one of my, certainly one of my favourite films to shoot, um, purely because there's such a variety in it. So many opportunities, you know, for the imagination. Um, some very clever stunt work with them, um, you know, on top of the train with the bridges going past. Uh, um, it very, sometimes he has to leap over a pipe and goes underneath a bridge, and, um, and then coupled with all the all the circus performers on the train and uh, Octopussy in her stateroom and just a feeling of luxury and excitement. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly original about leaping from one co carriage to another. It's been done on quite a few films now, but it's still pretty dangerous to do. During the scene on the train where Kabir uh, Bedi and, and Bond are fighting and Bond finds himself again um, under the train or between the carriages, Peter came up with an amazing solution. Um, he actually got the, got to the, the carriages brought from uh, the Neen Valley transported into the studio and he had these huge cranes which suspended them about four feet off the ground. And then, because we put a, um, a moving backing on the floor, and we just painted railway sleepers and track on the on the backing, and uh, that moved along. And John Richardson put motors on the wheels of the train to give the feeling of the train moving. And uh, you know, it's amazing, really, how uh, how authentic that looks. And uh, it was very workable. Uh, it was difficult for Roger because, um, you know, to be suspended under the train like that uh, requires you'd soon run out of energy, you know, just lifted, keeping yourself lifted up there. So we constructed uh, a rig for him with uh, wires so that um, it took the weight of his body and he was able to act uh, with all this other stuff going on because it was really a technical sequence. And, um, and to achieve the sparks when um, Colbert Bedi is hit, is striking out with a sword, 
um, we ran a, a, a wire down Kabir's arm connected to the sword, connected to a 12-volt battery, and every time he shorted out against the, the, any metal parts of the train, sparks would erupt. So, it, again, that was a, a, an old device that's been used for donkey's years, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a device that works just as well now as it did with, you know, in the old days. So. Um, these old techniques are very, very useful to know. Um, also, uh, the use of steam um, is great, you know, because, um, you know, A, it hides the multitude of sins, shall we say. You know, you get away with a lot of things, little imperfections. You put a bit of, a bit of steam over the scene. And also, Lewis Gilbert taught me, you know, like, it's a very useful device to, to get a fan to blow the steam. It gives you a great sense of movement. Um, whether it's outside an aeroplane uh, window or wherever you're trying to f fake something to look as though you're, you're moving. Um, steam's a very useful device to use and also CO2 uh, under pressure is also very useful because that dissipates very quickly. Um, at one point, Kabir Beedi um, uh, severs one of the connections, one of the hoses between the carriages and um, the, the steam hose which backwards and forwards um, scolding anyone who got in the way, it's superheated steam. Uh, so that produced uh, more suspense, and uh, uh, we kind of take advantage of every possibility when we, we draw these scenes up, when we invent these scenes. Uh, we just think of anything that could happen or anything that could go wrong uh, and take full, full advantage of it. Thing when I was in the Air Force, I always remember we used to hitchhike back from Lincolnshire to London, and uh, many times, um, well, several times, I would hitch a ride, and a guy would in a car would stop, and, the, uh, got, and I'd run up the road to try and catch the lift, and just as I got close to him, he'd drive away. And they just some people think that's really funny. I think it's horrible, but um, I used it in the movie. The idea came from that. Govinda will stay with the jewellery. More spooky? Thank you, Liebscher. Schnell, a bit of schnell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Machen job. It's good. Ein Bier? We were fortunate that on the Pinewood lot there, there, there was remnants of a set that had been built for another film, uh, a Bavarian village, and um, uh, we were able to use the scene where, where Bond is trying to make an urgent phone call, and of course there's always someone on the phone and refuses to get off. So all those sort of frustrations you meet in life we try and incorporate in the movie. Um, I remember the girl that played the, the actress that played that part was very, very good. And, 
obviously was very experienced at uh, making phone calls. <laughs> anyway, he stole a calf, so she got her own. She she got her just desserts, I suppose. And then we started the chase, um, which we shot mainly in Germany. Uh, Remy Julian, of course, and his team were the drivers, and. Uh, uh, I was amazed at the cooperation the German police gave us and uh, because there's no speed limit on their autobahns so uh, you can go as fast as you like. Um, the point is that everyone else is going fast so you've got to go even faster. Um, but the cooperation was great and uh, Remy and his team are such fantastic drivers and we were actually going down the autobahn um, at one stage going at a huge speed and, uh, and we were actually uh, what what the other people on the motorway thought, I don't know, because we were actually doing all our stump work and overtaking, and lights were flashing and sirens were screaming, and motorcycles and cars all going on, and uh, uh, no one seemed to take much notice. <laughs> Basically, on a Bond movie, almost every, every scene where you see the main actors, uh, that's, that's the first unit. Um, any, anything with doubles, leaping off trains and things which are so time-consuming, um, you have to do with a, what we call a supplementary unit, a second unit. And we send them off, and if they have to do it three times, fine. You know, it doesn't cost a fortune. But uh, with the first unit, we're so heavy on people and personnel and time and dealing with the main actors that you have to stick to your schedule because people are brought on for a few days and uh, in their contract and if they go over time then of course you you have to pay more money and uh, that's what the bottom line is that's what it's about money isn't it <laughs> um, we then moved up to upper hayford um to the um, air force base there and uh, the american air force authorities gave us wonderful cooperation uh, it was a kind of a critical time there because there was protesters outside the gate protesting against nuclear weapons and uh, the Greenpeace people were there in force and camped out and they didn't really make life too difficult for us but uh, we were very much aware of them and uh, they were a presence there all the time. Um, the, the, the Upper Hayford um, authorities um, you know, gave us full use of, uh, we couldn't stop them flying, we didn't want to stop them flying, I mean their planes were constantly in the background. Um, of our shots, and it was a nuclear base, and uh, security was pretty strict, but um, they, they gave us wonderful cooperation. I, I mean, and you think, what's the stake? <laughs> it's amazing. Where can I find the base commander? It's urgent. Let's see your circus pass. Damn it, man, I said it's urgent. Get out with your hands up! They're showing us auto! Some nut went through here in a stolen car. Wants the base commander. And he's wearing a red shirt. Um, in the, the big sequence uh, approaching the finale where uh, the bomb is 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 placed in a, in the ca the cat <coughs> in the cannon. Um, was a was another gigantic scene really which took a tremendous amount of organization and uh, you know when you're dealing with these big crowd scenes you have to um, you have to make sure you you shoot the crowd you know you, you actually make sure you get the value um, 
Uh, sometimes, you know, you get a, a, a shot where you can do it without the crowds and uh, you should, you know, you leave those shots until such times as you haven't got the people around. Of course, when I suggested to Roger that he should be disguised as a clown, again he looked at me and uh, and uh, raised a few eyebrows. Um, the thing is that um, I thought it'd be a perfect disguise for him, and uh, also, uh, you know, uh, um, he could handle it. You know, even to go to the whole extent, you know, with the red nose and the white face. I mean, and he did. He did it absolutely brilliantly, and. Uh, he wondered sometimes of the things I was getting him into, I'm sure. Um, but it made a good, good disguise. It enabled him to uh, gain access. Some very amusing moments in the circus. I mean, you know, when Roger comes, passes another clown dressed exactly the same, you know, it's like confusing, which is the one, which is the, the imposter, which is the real one. Um, all this stuff, I think, again, dealing with um, a, a kind of a non-professional crowd. There were some professional extras in the, in the crowd, but a lot of them were kids and people who, you know, it's difficult to get 500 people. Um, the trick is to keep them amused all day, you know, to, to, so they don't get bored, you know. They get bored very quickly. It goes on for two or three days. Um, and, and it's quite good that some of the acts, uh, some of the acts went on to keep them amused in between us, our shooting, because it isn't every shot that you you involve them, but uh, you try to, of course, from a point of economics. He'll destroy the entire operation. Any suspense film, uh, you've got a bomb that's ticking away. Um, you milk it for what it's worth, you know, and uh, it always works. Uh, the audience, you suddenly find uh, the audience is sitting there holding their breath. Um, you know, they get completely caught up in it. And uh, what you have to do as a director, you have to make sure that everyone is knows th what the bomb is going to do if it does reach zero, you know, and it, and it counts down. And um, you, the fact that it was such a brilliant-looking piece of machinery made it look authentic. And, and if it went off, you know, gone, you know, that was it. We'd all be out of here. <laughs> um, so the, the relief, and uh, immediately after the, the bomb reaches a critical point and, and Bond manages, of course, to save the world, um, you have to pay it off with a laugh. And uh, uh, we did that very neatly, I think, we use, using uh, uh, Dickie Graydon, you know, coming uh, you know, popping out of the cannon. Um, just gives people an excuse to laugh, to release their tension, and that is very important. Where was Kamal going? Back to India. Folks, we've had an emergency, but everything is all right now. You and your families are safe. Now, please leave the tent in an orderly manner. Thank you. The plane is refueled. We'll take off at sunrise. Are the gold certificates on board? Yes, Excellence. We'll take these also. Dollars, pounds, francs, marks. I can always print my own.
So the whole like, sort of idea of, uh, of the circus troupe and uh, we, the, the, have so many skills. And of course, you know, you can always introduce uh, specialist people, uh, tumblers. Uh, Susan Dando, an athletic uh, girl, I mean, she was, she was in there and uh, looked good and performed well. Um, most of the models, um, you wouldn't expect them to do anything too um, uh, death-defying, but um, they, they got into it, you know, and uh, they, they, they did well. But the girls, getting into the palace, um, the, the girls were being, you know, we used athletes. I mean, we had um, trapeze artists and, and, and tumblers and people integrated into the, our crowd. And um, we, we used not only the beautiful girls uh, to distract the guards, but we also used um, like a, the pyramid to, you know, for the strong girl to be carrying like five or six other girls and uh, and she wasn't that strong actually she she looked strong but she like a lot of people she wasn't she needed a bit of help so um, when you see her struggling holding that group up in the air um, uh, she's you know it's, it's sleight of hand again um, but they really loved this Make sure the horses are saddled. Yes, Excellent. I'll join you in a few minutes. Do you really think you can escape me? You know, another shot that was quite interesting to do was uh, when Q comes to the rescue. And um, he comes in in his um, in his uh, hot air balloon, and uh, I d did a shot in um, a shot of the in India of the night castle, beautifully illuminated against an evening sky, and um, we then used that as a plate, and we put a miniature John Richardson built a miniature balloon, which we flew um, on a wire. And uh, by move, we didn't move the camera. We just moved the arm of the camera, and it gave the feeling of the of the um, hot air balloon moving towards the um, the palace. Um, very successful model shot, and done very simply, which was a feature really of how we used to approach special effects. Um, we didn't have CGI in those days; com com computer generated digital effects. Um, so we did it. We did it for real. And the, the beauty, as you see it, it rushes the next day, and uh, you can see see whether it works or it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you try something else. Uh, I love the tum tumblers. I've always wanted to use tumblers, and they're great. And uh, uh, I think men always find it fun um, to see uh, 
a woman punching a man, <laughs> as long as they're not on the receiving end. But the, the hot air balloon sequence was fun to do. And uh, we actually, apart from the model shot, we actually had the, the full-size um, balloon, uh, the basket of the balloon anyway, uh, in, in the uh, studio. And uh, of course, Desmond was in his element playing with this stuff. And uh, again, it worked very well. I just came in on a crane arm. Some of the um, some of the Indian stuntmen that we use weren't really professional stuntmen. They'd like to be, I think, uh, but um, you know the stuntmen ranks at that time were pretty closed. And but some of those Indian guys were really good. The way they fell down the stairs, etc. Great visual humour, which um, I love. And I see the pa the tiger made another appearance. <laughs> When Bond escapes from, uh, or Bond chases uh, the villains to the airfield, um, we use a, an American stuntman who was an expert with um, transferring from a horse to an aeroplane. And we train this horse. Um, we train this horse to actually work with the aeroplane. I mean, you can't just suddenly get a, an animal and expect him to to chase an aeroplane up a runway, you have to do it slowly and gradually and get them used to the noise. And uh, the American stuntman was fantastic. He, um, the actual scene was shot in America, believe it or not. And, uh, and we, we got the, the, the costumes and the doubles um, and matched perfectly. The actual transfer is one of the great stunts, I think. I mean, it's like um, people just gasp when they saw it. Yeah. And it's all about time, you know. You, you give them time to get you, the animal time to get used to the noise and the wind. Um, probably the wind more than anything puts the horse off, but uh, it was a wonderful stunt. Intercut somewhere else with Roger Moore on the horse. He's a good horseman, Roger. The same boys that I'd used on previous films, um, Skydivers, um, we used the same people to do the um, climbing about on the outside of the aeroplane. Jake Lombard uh, was a man we'd used before, and we were very fortunate because he was such a great double for Roger. Um, we, we put uh, on the outside of this aeroplane, which we bought, um, we put handholds on the on the outside of various places so he could grip. And I was very keen to do loops and rolls, uh, any maneuver that 
to throw um, throw Bond off the top. And um, Jake was great, and he, he just did so well. The aeroplane, funnily enough, um, we'd bought it for the cut for the production. And when I spoke to Peter Lamont about you know how we were going to do the studio shots, uh, he decided the best way was to fly the aeroplane over to England. So they went via Greenland, like they used to do during the war, and. Uh, and then flew it out to Denham Airfield, which is near Pinewood Studios. They then negotiated with a local farmer who had an adjoining film to the studio. And uh, we took the hedge down and, uh, you know, filled in the ditch and uh, flew it from Denham to Pinewood and actually landed it outside the studio. And then it, from there it was transported across the road and into the stage. And there we had the same aeroplane in the studio. Um, with the backing and using all the old techniques, sometimes um, just just the backing with with steam and smoke we used to use, It'd give a feel on the speed. But there's some wonderful shots in there. Um, this business of climbing over the aeroplane it was something that uh, B.J. Worth and Jake used to do when they used to uh, when they were um, skydiving in America. The, they would they would get out and climb all over the aeroplane, and that's where the idea came from. Um, once you get that idea, then it's very simple to develop the rest of the sequence. There's so many things one can one can do. Um, one engine had to go out on the plane, um, which is it's never a good idea to do with an old aeroplane like that. But uh, he starts to lose power, and then the most interesting thing that happened was when Phil Restler was um, shooting the opening sequence with the BD jet. Um, uh, while he was there, I was going to get him to do a shot where this aeroplane crashes. We were actually going to write it off. Uh, it wasn't the same one, it was very similar. It had one good engine and one bad engine. And we found a Mesa in uh, Montana somewhere, uh, which was a thousand feet above the ground. And they'd been used for rocket testing. And it had a railway on top of the Mesa. And of course, it ended with a precipice. And uh, so Phil Restler um, got into position and uh, had six cameras working on this. And uh, we got a truck to do 40 miles an hour in the opposite direction, towing the airplane to the end of the ramp, the rocket launching ramp. And uh, of course, the, the, the truck was well out of picture. And uh, the idea was that uh, we had a dummy at the controls, one engine turning over at Tickover, the other one dead. And uh, the idea was, of course, that it would crash into the ground and we'd film it on six cameras and get an authentic plane crash. Um, what in fact happened was it came off the end of the rocket ramp, dived towards the ground, got within 100 feet of the ground, straightened out, narrowly missed all the local rocks and boulders that were scattered in the valley floor and flew away out of sight with the dummy at the controls, um, absolutely uncanny. But the cameras, of course, followed it. And we got some of the most exciting footage of a plane missing its wingtips, just missing the mountains by a hair's breadth. It was the most incredible piece of flying I've ever seen, and it was done by a dummy. For an hour two, had no intention to do the things we've done. i
so strong and so deep and so hard. 